The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime! Welcome to the show. I always love that opening with the double stack marshals. I always picture Pete Townsend diving off the top of them and sliding across the stage with Keith Moon flailing away on the drums. John Entwistle, of course. Johnny Thunder over in the side playing his bass. And uh, Roger Daltrey swinging that microphone. Am I a Who fan? Hello. I'm excited tonight, folks. I'm excited because we've got a great guest for us uh, on the show tonight. His name is Ray Garten. Ray Garten, folks, uh, many of you will know his work from the horror genre. He's written over 60 books. In 2006, just recently, he was presented with the World Horror Convention Grand Master Award. Some of his works, let me just tell you what he's done. Okay, he's done a lot of TV work um, in terms of books. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Now, who doesn't like Buffy? And he's also written a somewhat controversial book, which we're going to get into right away. And that's called In a Dark Place, The Story of a True Haunting. Now, this book was released in 1992. And the controversy comes because it was written with Ed Warren and Lorraine Warren. Most people watching this show will know those two names. These are... um, Well, they're more than just ghost hunters. They're demonologists, I guess you could say. It was also written with Al Snedeker and Carmen Snedeker, who had the events take place in their own home. Now, before I continue, I want to welcome right away, I want to welcome Ray to the show. Ray, can you give us a brief synopsis of what the book is about before you came to your own conclusions, just for those that haven't read it and are unaware of the story? The uh, the Snedeker family moved into a house that uh, was formerly a funeral home. They claim that it was uh, infested with demons, and the first one to, to notice this was their son. The story has changed somewhat since I wrote that book. At the time, it was uh, I, I was intrigued because when I got the offer to do the job, I was familiar with Ed and Lorraine Warren. I'd been following their exploits as a kid. Uh, I used to read about them in the National Enquirer. I was a kid who read the Enquirer, so that tells you something about me, I guess. Um, and so I, I read it, it too, Ray. I read it too. No <laughs> worries, my friend. I uh, I thought it would be fun, and so I took the job and I got there and. I found that um, the individual stories of the family that the family told me were not quite meshing. They should all coincide. There should be uh, a cohesiveness to it. Yes, yes. Mm. And when that was a problem, I approached Ed about it, and um, and Ed told me uh, just use what you can and and make the rest up. Can you give us an? Well, wait a second. He said make the rest up. Yeah. He said make the. I'm not kidding. He said, make the rest up. He said, you use what you can, make the rest up. He said, you write scary books. That's why we hired you. You know, make it up and make it scary. Oh, my God. And <clears throat> I didn't have to make up everything, but, you know, I had the stuff I had to work with was not going to work on its own. And so I had to help it along. And the book was published as nonfiction, and that was my big objection was that it was being published as nonfiction. It has been, it's recently been reprinted, but only because I found, they found a publisher who who would uh, 
agree to my terms, which were, it's not a true story, so I don't want it sold as nonfiction, drop the uh, subtitle, uh, The true Story of a True Haunting. And they and he did. That was that was okay with him. And it was apparently okay with um, Lorraine and, and uh, Carmen, because they went along with it, so it's in print again. Okay, let's back up a bit. Now, what drew you to the story? Was there any conversation that you had with the Snedekers that you believed was an actual <clears throat> demon happening or something along those lines? No, I signed on on the basis of, uh, I had been told that it was uh, uh, an Ed Lorraine Warren case, which is pretty much all I needed to know. And I went to Connecticut and then met with the Snedekers and the Warrens. And I found that it was an interesting story. I, I, didn't, I, I, I didn't have to believe it. For, for for them to believe it, but what were some of the things that that you happened upon? The family moved in uh, to this house. They they said that their son, who was suffering from cancer at the time, needed to be near a hospital there in Connecticut. So they moved into this house, and the son was the first to to begin seeing and hearing things, and they didn't believe him at first. But before long, they were all having ex these experiences, and they included um, rape. There, but this is common to Ed and Lorraine Warren books that involve demons. There's demons just love that sort of thing, apparently. Uh, and they um, they stayed in the house for for quite a while. Um, and when the neighbors, uh, the, as it turns out, weren't they didn't they didn't agree with the story. They said that these things weren't hap weren't happening. That there was some sort of uh, explosion or something that happened in the neighborhood, and it turned out to be a transformer or something like that. I could be wrong on that. If I might be misremembering that, but it had an explanation. It was a transformer, not demons or ghosts. And the woman who lived upstairs in their house, because it was a two-level house, there was a family upstairs. She claimed that she heard, felt, saw nothing, um, and she got pretty tired of <laughs> of the attention. The problem for me was when Ed told me to make it up, and by then I'd signed the contract and I was on for the ride. So, so the story I think was made into um, a History Channel or a Discovery Channel. Yes. The yes. Haunting in Connecticut, right? Yes. Where the uh, the family moves in and the two boys are uh, sent downstairs to share a room, mm -hmm. and right beside the room, if I'm remembering correctly, there was uh, because it was an old funeral parlor. That was where the um, the embalming took place. The embalming was done. Yeah, there was a there was a, a lift where they lowered the the, the caskets the into casket the into yeah it. yeah and then they started seeing an apparition and the apparition had no eyes it had dark eyes gloomy eyes and of course the parents wouldn't believe them then they bring Ed and Lorraine in and all hell breaks loose at that point. Yes, yes, that's which is usually the case. Um, <laughs> uh, I haven't seen the Discovery Channel show um, or the movie that followed, the, the, the Haunting in Connecticut. Uh, I understand the movie is quite different from from anything that had come previously. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the story. So what parts in the book, can you tell us one part that you got right from the Snedekers and then maybe another part that you made up? The thing that stands out in my memory most are the uh, <laughs> the, the the forced sodomy. Um, there was there was one scene where Carmen told me she was washing dishes in the kitchen, and she was raped by an invisible demon, um, and she ran out of the house. And as she was running out of the house and down the driveway, the rape continued. Um, which is kind of mind-boggling, but that's that was that was her story. Um, the stuff that I had to make up was was stuff was the uh, cohesive material that, that tied it all together that made it a story because it really wasn't a story. It was a vignette over here, and a vignette there, and um, I had to bring it all together and and make it make sense. I have not revisited the book. I haven't read the book since I wrote it. Okay, let's go back. I just want to revisit this, and uh, then we'll move on in a few minutes. I, I just want to um, get an understanding that uh, 
there was little vignettes and then you, you had to fill in the yeah. blanks and make some sort of cohesive narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, did Ed, Ed and Lorraine, did they finally read the final product and have you make changes or anything of that nature? No. I mean, I, I didn't have to make any changes. I don't remember having to make any changes. Um, they were fine with it. Uh, Carmen has since denounced it. Ed and Lorraine had a, uh, they, when I went to Connecticut, they said they had a videotape of one of the apparitions. And I was really excited about that. Um but it turns out they they misplaced it, <laughs> and I they were never able to find it again. What's your take on Ed and Lorraine? I know Ed's uh, passed away. Yeah, Ed has has passed away. Um, they're hucksters. They're uh, they're performers, and they do these these investigations. The goal is to. Uh, have a book or movie deal, or both, if possible. Um, Ed was always talking about how we're, we want it to be a good story. We need it to be a story. It has to be a, a, a full story with a beginning, middle, and end. And that's what they do. They, they, or that's what they did back in those days. They went around uh, doing these investigations, and when they found one that had all the right elements, what they thought were all the right elements, they'd pull in a writer, always a horror writer, always somebody who writes horror fiction. And they would uh, whip the book up and then maybe get a movie deal. I know that's how it's always worked in the past, before, prior to the, the, the story that I did. When you did research on the book, I suspect, you know, you had to speak with the Snedekers. And did oh, you yeah. go to the house? The, we weren't allowed at the house. The people oh. who lived there wouldn't let us near it. Um, I know the people who live there now. And they are sick of, of, of all of this. There's been no, they've had no problems. The only problems they've had have been um, fans coming to the house for souvenirs, you know, like breaking stuff off and, or, or stealing things. So they'd have a souvenir. Their movie studio, when the, when the movie came out, they published the street address on their website. Oh, no. And, and, and so the, the people living there now got a whole lot of visitors that they didn't want. Um. I never got to see the inside of the house. I talked with uh, the Snedekers, and I, I spent time with the Warrens. Um, Carmen now claims that we only spoke briefly for a few minutes, and, and that, that there was, you know, I was there for, not, I don't remember how long I was there. It was a, a, a couple of days, I think. And then there was phone contact afterwards. Now, the story has a couple of priests going, and the priests are supposed to be scared away. Is that all fabricated, or is there any truth? I never met any priests. I, um, I was not introduced to priests. I've, I've, I heard about them. I was told about them. Um, I never met the son. Uh, he has since passed, and that's, uh, I was very sad to hear about that. Um, I did talk to him on the phone once. And uh, later found out that he had been diagnosed with schizophrenia uh, and institutionalized. When I talked to him on the phone with Carmen, um, it was a very brief conversation because as soon as he told me, well, when I started uh, taking medication, everything I was seeing and hearing stopped. Carmen ended the conversation right there. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, we're starting to get a, a little bit of a different picture than what yeah. has been portrayed on television. Now, for them to reach out to Ed and Lorraine, um, what was the purpose? Just speculation on your part. Any purpose beyond just trying to get some help for them to reach out to Ed and Lorraine? Were they looking for a movie deal, money, cash? Well, according to their upstairs neighbor, um, Carmen had been talking for some time about having bad dreams, and she had read about Ed and Lorraine and was very interested in contacting them. I think that uh, that was, this is purely speculation, purely speculation, just my opinion based on what I saw. Um, I think that the goal from the beginning was a book or movie deal, uh, and Ed and Lorraine was the way to do it. What was the instant that you said, okay, this is bunk, 
uh, I don't want to be part of this anymore. Um, this is just, you know, not working out the way I intended. When Ed told me to make it up. That was it. Use, use what you can, make the rest up. Then I, I then it, the picture became much clearer to me about what was going on here. Um, this was a, um, a fabrication. We were, we were putting on a show. What did you think was going on inside the house? Anything paranormal, or did you feel it could all be explained with natural <laughs> occurrences? Um, I had no reason to believe that there was anything paranormal going on, um, except for what the Snedekers told me, and and the uh, the the Warrens had had their sort of stories too. They claimed to have experiences in the house, seeing apparitions, and like the one they got on video but lost. Um, I'm not uh, really a believer in the supernatural. I'm not closed. I, my mind isn't closed to it, but I have never. I, I just haven't seen anything that I've found convincing, and that was true of this case too. There was nothing there that that led me to believe that anything had gone on. It's funny. I was going to ask you one of my questions for you tonight was, have you ever wanted to do your own investigation into you know something like Ed and Lorraine did? and perhaps uh, derive from those investigations a real story, um, a tr what you felt would be a true story, an authentic story. If I, if I found a, story, a situation uh, where I really thought there was something strange going on, I would certainly be interested in looking into it. But uh, please, hold your letters. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't... I don't know if I would... Um, that's something I would follow through on, but it would, it would certainly be tempting. Mm. In fiction, I I still have to do tons and tons of research, but I can make stuff up. Nonfiction would require not only tons and tons of research, but also um, sticking to the details and getting everything right, mm. which was not necessary with the only book I ever wrote that was labeled nonfiction, which was in a dark place. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I would... Uh, that would be a great responsibility, and I'm I'm not sure I'd want to take that on. Hmm. Have it's you ever thought about writing a novel exposing in a dark place? In other words, your story, your own narrative, your personal experience? I have you? thought about doing that. I um, Some of that crept into my novel, um, The Loveliest Dead, which is a ghost story. And it involves uh, a married couple who are paranormal investigators. <laughs> and uh, that, But that's fiction. It's not... Uh, it's not meant to be taken as, uh, yeah. But it, 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 I drew on that. And, yeah, I thought about doing a novel about that. It would be funny. It would be a funny novel, I think. I I don't, I think it would have to be approached as comedy. I, I... <laughs> You know, there, there's, there are many um, people who admire Ed and Lorraine for what they've done. Have you been ostracized at all by a certain segment of that genre because of it? Well, not ostracized because I, I was never a part of that group, but I have felt the wrath of uh, Ed and Lorraine's. Uh, How so? What's online um, in comments uh, under stories about me, uh, they get really nasty. <laughs> Do they make up stuff or expand? Well, they don't. They they don't like me. I mean, they're they're just very insulting. They think that I that I'm lying about all this for the money. And I want to know where that money is because I'm not making any money telling this story. <laughs> yeah, I've been telling this story for you know over 20 years, and and um, no, it's not. It I, it gives me a little exposure, I have to admit. But that's not why I did it. I was I was doing it before it was able to give me any exposure, just because I wanted. I saw it as a story that was going to be debunked pretty quickly, and I I wanted to make sure that. Uh, Nobody saw it as my fault. <laughs> have you had a conversation with Lorraine? I know Ed's passed away. No way. Ed, uh, did you have one before he passed away? Or? Not after working on the book, no. No, no I, haven't, I haven't talked to them. Okay. I had a conversation with Carmen um, on a radio show. I can't remember the name of the radio show, but it was uh, that was where she told me that I was, that's where she said that I had spent only a few minutes or something with them, that I hadn't spent very much time. And she claimed that she told me back then 
10 years from now, you're going to start saying that this was all a lie. I have no memory of that conversation. <laughs> um, but it, she plays the victim and she, she was at one point she started crying in the conversation and um, I, I just don't, it's, I don't see any point in doing that again. I, Did you visit their home at all and the old Annabelle thing and all that? Oh, stuff? Yeah, I, I went to uh, the Warren's house. I saw their museum. I saw all of Ed's paintings of uh, haunted houses. Mm. I saw Annabelle. Um, <laughs> um, I was in their museum at night. I felt nothing. <laughs> People claim to feel all kinds of stuff when they go in there. But I think it helps if you go in there expecting to feel something and believing in it in the first place. And that wasn't the case with me. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I spent time with them in their home. And, yeah, that was interesting. So you're not a firm believer in the paranormal, yet you have 60 books of horror stories. And mm -hmm. they're fabulous. Um what drew you to the paranormal, to that genre, to write in? I was a scared kid. I grew up terrified. <laughs> and horror was sort of a natural uh, natural place for me. I had a, an upbringing in a religion that was very apocalyptic. And I was, before I learned about anything else, I learned about the coming time of trouble. And it scared the hell out of me. I mean, I, it kept me awake at night. And I found that watching... Um, horror movies on TV provided a kind of relief from the stuff that I actually believed. I knew they weren't real, um, but they were scary in a fun way, as opposed to being scary in the way that I was used to, <laughs> which wasn't fun at all. Um, so I would watch Creature Features every Saturday night on um, Channel 2 in San Francisco, Bob Wilkins. God, I love that guy. Um Dark Shadows, Night Gallery, Twilight Zone, all those great shows. And I, I was writing before I could write. I was drawing stories first and then writing them after I learned to write. And they sort of naturally took dark turns, which my mother found very disturbing. She wondered what she was doing wrong. Um, and I just kept that up. And I knew I, whenever anyone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said, I want to be a writer. And I knew I would be at some time. It happened a little earlier than I thought, a little sooner than I thought, but um, I that was that was my goal always. You know what used to scare me as a kid because I grew up in a Christian background is the um, redemption part. You know when all the people disappear? I always felt if I was such a bad kid because I was <laughs> rotten or, little kid, yeah. everybody had been gone. And everything <laughs> only one. <laughs> The last person alive in the world, so that yeah. yeah, I can I can relate to what you know used to terrify you. Now, how yeah. did you get involved in the Buffy series? This is something uh, fascinating. I was my wife and I were big Buffy fans, and um, I just got an opportunity. My agent hooked me up with the publisher of the tie-in novels, and I got to write an original novel. It was a blast. I loved it. It was fun. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the synopsis of that particular? Book yeah, it was. The one thing that I found hadn't been touched on in all of the mythology uh, that had been used in the Buffy series was the Hindu mythology. That, and, and I looked into that briefly and was just dazzled by the number of deities involved. I mean, you know, it, was, it was amazing. So I, I knew right away that's where I wanted to set it. And um, somebody's bringing Ravana back. Uh, 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 yeah, I don't want to give away the ending. For the no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely not. Um, how do you feel, you know, Buffy was kind of the first of the romantic style vampires. Maybe you'll disagree with that statement right out of the gate. And then we, we've come into Twilight and on all the rest of them, which I think have really bastardized vampires. Yeah, I think Buffy was kind of the bridge to that. Um, Buffy did things with vampires that hadn't been done before. And my favorite part of it was, you know, it's tough enough being a teen, but to be a, a teen and have to put up with what Buffy puts up with, that's, that's even worse. That's what, that's what drew me into the series in the first place. The vampires are now sparkling and I, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. I grew up with the, uh, you know, Peter Cushing and, uh, oh, yeah. and Chris Lee and Chris all Lee. that. Yeah. Yeah. Bill Lugosi. Yeah. 
Barnabas Collins. <laughs> yeah, and all the scary guys, you know. Those were <clears throat> they were all scary. Spawn of Satan guys. Yeah. And now they've yeah. gone on and they've become superheroes somehow. And that I yeah, I'm just not too comfortable with that. It's like um, the serial killers. They have become sort of anti-heroes. Uh, uh, the TV series Dexter, which I've, I've only seen a couple of episodes of it. It looks like a great show. It's just that I'm a little bit nervous about, you know, cheering on a serial killer. Maybe I know too much about serial killers from, from the research I've done, but um, it's kind of hard to imagine liking one. <laughs> no, I hear you. I completely understand that as well. How much leeway did they give you for the dialogue? You know, because you've got a set character. How far could you go with characters? How far could you go with storyline? They were pretty particular, especially about dialogue, um, because the dialogue was uh, very distinctive from Buffy. It was, uh, uh, and I, I didn't have any problem with the dialogue exact, the, the dialogue itself but there were a few times when I had characters doing things that they didn't think that, 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 that were outside what they wanted those characters to do. So I, um, I did some rewriting and was, was happy to do it because you're playing with somebody else's toys when you write one of those. I want to be respectful of those toys. Was it easier to write with those confines or was it harder to write in those confines? I didn't have any, any, any trouble. I, I enjoyed writing tie-ins. I, I, uh, I just wrote another, um, my first in a while, I did an X-Files story for a, a collection of um, uh, X-Files stories by horror and science fiction writers. It's coming out, I think, next month, It's or maybe it's this month. It's called um, Trust No One from IDW. Well, that's great. You know, and I was just reading Fox News has announced that X-Files yes. is coming out. Yes. Back. Oh, that's, a, that's great news. So maybe they'll option the book and... Who knows, right? Yeah. Can you give us a synopsis of your particular X-Files story for the folks? Without giving um, away the ending, of course. It's about a paranormal investigation show, a TV show, a reality uh, TV show. And someone dies in a very strange way, and um, Mulder and Scully are brought in. And they try to get to the bottom of the mystery. And they do, but... Um, one of the things I enjoyed about the show was the sort of vague nature. You had you had to fill in some of the gaps yourself, uh, and I like that. So I tried to follow that with the story as much as possible. How did you deal with those characters? Did you put them in the ages that they were in the 90s, or did you? Yeah, you did. this takes oh. place uh, late 90s. It takes place here uh, in my area, which most of my stuff does. And it's in a, in a book filled with X-Files stories. Okay. It's edited by Jonathan Mayberry, the great Jonathan Mayberry. <laughs> okay, that's great news. So that's there's something for you to look for, folks. And yeah. I'll put some of those links up on the www.nightfrightshow.com website. As always, just click on tonight's guest book covers. There will be a slew of them. And uh, you can go to, uh, just click on it. It'll take you right to a spot where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. Our guest tonight, Ray Garten, of course, is a renowned horror writer, 60, 60 books. Um, and we were just talking about the Ed and Lorraine thing, which we'll revisit a little bit later on. Sure. Have you had any personal paranormal experiences besides growing up terrified? <laughs> I really haven't. I wish I, I wish I could say I did, but I, I haven't had any. I think maybe that has something to do with the fact that I don't look for it. Since I'm, I, I don't believe in it, that is not an explanation that I, that I turn to. I've never found anything that, that hasn't had perfectly normal explanation, something very mundane. You had mentioned serial killers before, and um, I happen to live in a place called Kingston, and we have we had... Uh, the oldest penitentiary here, maximum security, and we housed um, Carla Homolka. Oh yeah, yeah, all these wonderful people. I call them the Canadian Hall of Fame. <laughs> and <laughs> honest to God, it's you know you drive by and you think the walls how thick? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how many bullets did the guards have? Because these are you know. I'm... Oh, those are scary people. Yeah, that's see that's the thing. I don't think we need any help from the supernatural. I think people. Mm -hmm are perfectly capable of being evil on their own. They don't need any help. Um, 
I, I'm trying to think of something that, that, and I know there, there are things that came out of, uh, that sprang from real life things that gave me the idea. And I can't think of any right now. I'm sorry. Um, live girls was, uh, that's about vampires running a peep show and a strip club in times square back in the eighties, back when times square was, uh, kind of a scary place. It was a lot different than it is now. It wasn't yeah. the family friendly atmosphere that it is now. Yeah, it's more like Disneyland North now. <laughs> Yes, yeah. and I went uh, there for the first time, and being a small-town boy living a very sheltered religious uh, life, it was an eye-opening experience. And I visited one of the peep shows, which is a booth that you step into, and there's a there was a, a box where you put tokens in and a panel slides up in front of you and there's a window with a woman on the other side. There's a slot to um, slip money through to give her tips. And the girl on the other side of this particular booth was emaciated and looked very ill and not, not well at all. And the slot had been torn open so that it was larger and it had ridges around the edges. And when I looked at that with the light shining through the slot from the other side, I thought it looks like it's been chewed open. And live girls dropped into my head, just one whole piece. I went back to my publisher's office, Pinnacle, and found a typewriter and started writing. It started out as a short story, but then uh, developed into a novel. How far do you go with your characters in a situation like that? Do you ever get scare yourself when you go deep into the psyche of oh, one of your characters? Yeah, yeah, I, I've I've upset myself plenty. My novel Shackled, which um, used the uh, satanic ritual abuse uh, period from uh, the eighties and nineties, <clears throat> I uh, I used that in 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 that novel, and. How did you research that, if I might ask you, Ray? I just read everything I could find about uh, the, the these stories, you know, and there were a lot of them back then. They were everywhere. Uh, and this was in the 90s. By the, by the time I wrote the book, it had pretty much passed, but it involved children. So it was very difficult to write, and I uh, had to stop a couple of times, you know, take a break, and it was ugly. But I've always approached horror with the idea that nothing should be held back. I don't. Well, I love the subtle stuff. Um, when there's violence, I think it should be depicted realistically and explicitly, and it should be as unpleasant as possible. Because I like shackled. I, the thing that worried me was who might read it and what they might get out of it that I didn't intend. If that makes sense. Um, in um, Bestial, my novel Bestial, there are some, or I guess in Ravenous too, Ravenous and Bestial both, there's some rape. I went out of my way to make that as unpleasant as possible because I didn't want anyone to enjoy it. I don't want it to be entertaining. I don't want it to be amusing. I want it to be horrifying. I want it to be what it is. And so... Is there a difference for you, Ray, between horror and evil? Yeah, horror is um, horror is an emotion that you you feel in response to something horrifying. Evil is something that's done. Um, it's it's uh, something that's done to other people. Horror is is you you can't do horror to people. You you can do evil. <laughs> yeah, you sure can. You know, you just touched on a subject. I had a guest on. Christine Corder, it's a, it's a, her show is in the archives, folks. She went through a real Roman Catholic exorcism, and there's a couple of tie-ins to her story because she went through this sexual abuse that you just talked oh, yeah. in the 80s um, where she was actually changed to a cadaver, and her parents took her out of uh, a graveyard, uh -huh. chained to this cadaver, and passed her around to all sexually abused. And um, she had... Ed and Lorraine approach her. Mm -hmm. Ed offered to get her a Roman Catholic exorcism as long as he could get the movie rights to her story. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> she bailed on him. Good for her. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. So there's the tie-in to that. But, yeah, I, I understand the horrificness of it because, uh, you know, these things actually happen to her. And I can understand where you would be terrified to go in that direction. Do you ever worry that you're going to inspire a whack job? I – no, I, I don't worry about that so much because – I don't know that you would be a whack job. It would have to be you. You have to have something wrong with you in the first place. Oh yeah, this is not a normal person. No. Um, if I were to worry about that, I I wouldn't be able to work. I wouldn't be able to do anything. I mean, I, I, I and being a worrier, you know, it's it's. I can imagine myself doing that, just freezing up because of that uh, that worry. I don't think it's realistic for writers to worry about that, because and for that very reason, because you. You can't um, not write something be- for, because you think somebody else out there is going to be inspired to do it. Nobody would write anything. It'd be terrifying. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, um, when people say, well, he committed suicide because he was listening to some lyrics by some famous, uh, yeah. rock, you know, it, mm-hmm. yeah. there's probably something else going on besides oh, yeah. the lyrics. <laughs> so, Ray, you've got a wonderful series out called Frankenstorm. How did this Actually, it's not a series. Oh, it's not. I'm no, sorry, I apologize. A, no, that's okay. It's um, it's one. It was a, a single novel, um, about a freak storm that um, damages a secret facility where government research is going on. They're trying to create a human. A, a, a they're they're trying to create a biological weapon that turns people into enraged psychopaths. Hmm. The storm hits. The place is damaged, and the test subjects, who are homeless people taken off the street, get out, and it's contagious. Um, so that's the that's the premise. But it's, no, it's not a series. It was part of a, a line of books at um, Kensington uh, that were sort of disaster thrillers. You know, that, that's that came out last year. How important is the research to you? Because you know you've got all these different types of tales, different types of stories. Um, <clears throat> I'm thinking research is really important, and this question is more for the younger uh, audience that are, is considering becoming a writer, perhaps. Yeah, research is everything. I mean, you have to you have to know more than you actually use in the book. Good point. Even if you're not, if you only look for the stuff you need, somebody is going to see something wrong with your book when it comes out. Somebody who knows better is going to laugh at the big mistake you made. And sometimes those mistakes can be not a lack of research, but just, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to my own mistake in a minute. But, uh, yeah, you have to know more than, than you use in the book because you need that confidence. You, you, you need the command of the subject, enough command of the subject, to be convincing in the novel or in the story. Um, there's... There's no end to the things you have to research because you have to know how things work. You have to know what to call things. You have to. There's a wonderful scene in um, Throw Mama from the Train at the beginning when Billy Crystal is teaching his uh, his creative writing course. There's a woman who is writing a story that takes place in a submarine. She has obviously no idea uh, what it looks like inside a submarine, and she has people pulling the lever that makes the submarine do this or do that. Because <laughs> she doesn't know what to call anything, and she didn't bother to find out. She didn't bother to do her research. Yes, yeah. and that uh, that kind of thing can be really damaging to a story. How hard is it for you? I mean, you've got 60 books out now, Ray. How hard is it for you to come up with new ideas? It's amazing how ideas, they're always, David Lynch says they're they're always there, and every once in a while you catch one. Um, for most writers I know, they're, they're, they, they're, it's raining ideas. You know, you look around, you read the news, well, that nobody reads newspapers anymore. Look at the, the news on the internet or on TV. Every day there is something that would make a good book, a good horror novel, uh, because that's unfortunately what so much of the news is now. It's, it's, it's all horror. What wouldn't uh, you touch? 
Is there anything in the news that you wouldn't touch? You know, I, I asked this question, and I'll put it in context. Uh, given that the nature of the show, I've had many, many horror, uh, not horror, I'm sorry, uh, ghost hunters on. Mm -hmm. um, people who can connect with spirit. And I, I ask them sometimes, would you ever go to Ground Zero 9-11 to connect? And that's verboten. Is there that, anything that you would not touch on? I haven't found it yet. I wrote a novella a few years ago called Threesome that started out as I, I, I see a lot of uh, a lot of crime and, and, and killing that's done by couples. They're they work together. And I've always wondered at what point did they learn? Oh, you like to do that, too? <laughs> you know, what was what was that conversation like? <laughs> where they found out that they were both interested in killing and torturing and doing these horrible things. It's kind of like Homoka and uh, Bernardo. Yes, exactly, exactly. I'm intrigued by that idea, and I wanted to explore the, I wanted the conversation to happen on paper, on the page. I wanted to cover the discovery where they both realized that they're into this. It didn't turn out that way at all. <laughs> it was, the novella took its own, own direction, and, but it was still a very extreme, ugly, violent piece. And I just, I realized as I was writing it, I can't do this anymore. I, I uh, maybe it's, it comes with age, you know, as you get closer to your own end. Uh, I'm much more interested in how people live these days and how they die. But um, that was the, that was the story that made me realize I, I just, this is not fun. I'm not enjoying this and I can't do it anymore. So that was the end of the extreme violence and gore for me. What makes up a good story, a good protagonist, a good antagonist? Those th things are necessary. Um, well, no matter where the story takes place or when the story takes place, it can take place in the past, it can take place in the future, you have to have some sort of emotional connection to the characters. There has to be something familiar about them, something you don't even have, you don't necessarily have to like them, but you have to have there, there has to be something there that grabs you and pulls you along, makes you want to find out what's going to happen to this person. How is this person going to change? How are they going to reach? How is this person going to reach his goal? Um, character, I think, to me is just uh, the all important part of, of any story. Because if you don't care about the characters, there's no point in following them through the story. I agree with you. I think more so in books than any other genre. Yes. Because you know, at any other genre, you could fill in CGI or something. Oh, know? yeah. But not books. You're right in somebody's head. Having written movie novelizations, I wrote uh, the novelizations for the movies Warlock, Invaders from Mars. I did a couple of Nightmare on Elm Street movies. There's a lot you can get away with in movies that you cannot get away with in books. Absolutely. Uh, because you've only got, uh, you've got a short period of time in which to tell your story. So there's a lot of stuff that's left out. You can't skip that stuff in a book because it leaves logic holes that uh, that need to be filled. And, and in fact, that was one of the more challenging and fun things about adapting a movie script into a novel was was filling those gaps and making it work. Tell us about what you did with Freddy, Freddy Krueger. I did uh, parts four and five. Um, and there was two two movies in one book. What is it about that character that attracted you to it? Now, obviously, you know, your agent gets you work. You're going to do the work. Oh, but I, I wouldn't. Oh, yeah. I, Freddy, the thing that made Freddy work so well hmm. is that he was a dream. You, you, the, in, the, in the second movie, they made the mistake of bringing him out of the dream world and making him a real person, bringing him in the real world. That didn't work. Freddy is a dream. He's a nightmare. And... Because of that, he has all of the powers and logic, and uh, he, he, he works the same way nightmares do, and that makes him very, very scary. I think that there's an inherent um, humanistic fear of nightmares as well. Yes. I think it comes back to lack of control because we're vulnerable when we're sleeping. We're at the mercy of our own thoughts, our own demons, yes. if you will. Does that all tie into it, do you think? Oh, yes, yes, I think it does. Um, that's That, to me, is what makes him scary. I I, I hate nightmares. Had, I, I don't have them so much anymore, but when I was growing up, every night, every night, you can't 
control what goes on. In the, well, I guess there are some people who do lucid dreaming, but that's not that's not the norm. In a, in a nightmare, you're you're pretty much defenseless, and you're at the mercy of the nightmare. <laughs> what makes Freddy Krueger so attractive over so many books, so many movies? I mean, you know, people keep coming back to this guy. Is it that inherent uh, connection, that human yes. connection that we all have? I think so. I think it's the 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 terror of the, the fear of knowing that he is inside our heads. Mm. He's not out there. He's in here. And when we close our eyes and go to sleep, we're with him. Um, there's no escaping. And we can't stay awake forever. That's right. Yeah. At one point, <laughs> we're going to have to give in to that vulnerability and try and get some shut eye, as they say. I want to revisit the Ed Lorraine thing. When you were approached by them, this must have been a big thing because you were you're just starting out your career, more or less, I think, when this happened. I yeah, mean, I would have been invited, too, you know. Yeah. Was there anything about their story at all that rang true? I I, I guess not. I, I guess not. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there was enough. a lot of there was a lot of talk about uh, movie deals. I remember Carmen was very interested in. She kept asking me how much they could make off of a movie deal. I had no idea. I didn't. I I don't know anything about the movie business. Um, but it was very much uh, on their minds. It was a prominent subject while I was there. On the same subject of characters, because as we had discussed before, this is so important. How much do you project of yourself into your characters? Anything at all? Some? None? Especially the antagonist, the bad guy. If you <laughs> and I'm very glad that we're at a distance. <laughs> you know, I I was never aware of doing that. Um, but then one day my friend uh, Karen Leonard sat me down and said, look, here you are here and you're here and this is your life here. And she started pointing out this stuff to me and I was flabbergasted. I had no idea there were so many pieces of myself and my life and my fiction. That was not intentional, but it's there. Um, and I think that's the case with any writer. You cannot, you can't divorce yourself from what you're writing because it comes out of you. It's a part of you. Are they truly your children? You know, you always hear people use that cliche that, you know, when you're writing something, they become your children. I guess I'm a bad parent. I, they're, they're my children at the time that I'm writing them and when I let them go. And then I move on to the next kid. <laughs> the next kid. Yeah. <laughs> so the X-File sounds very exciting. You know, this is, a, yeah, that's, this is great. IDW is doing a um, final, the, the final season, the official final season of the series as a series of comic books. Um, in fact, Chris Carter, I think, has, has written one of, the, one of the comic books, maybe even more than that. And the... Um, there are going to be two volumes of X-Files short stories. I'm in the first, Trust No One. I'm not sure. I don't remember what the, the name of the second one is. They're both edited by Jonathan Mayberry. And um, I'm looking forward to those comic books. No kidding. No kidding. It's going to be fantastic. Ray Garten's our, uh, our guest tonight, folks, if you're just joining us. www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book covers, with a plural, because there's 60 of them. <laughs> Dig in because this is fabulous stuff. You know, you can uh, spend a year with Ray. Change <laughs> mind. <laughs> in the same sense, Ray, that you have some of yourself in your characters, is there some of your immediate family in some of the characters or friends? <laughs> and that's where you really get into trouble. When the wife says, did you write about me? <laughs> Am I really like that? Actually, my wife uh, has been pretty safe, um, but my See, that's family... you're a smart man. <laughs> yes. My family, they haven't fared quite so well. <laughs> a little vindictive, um, are we? No, I'm there's a, Well, there's a lot of my childhood in, in mm. my books. Um, a lot of that fear. And in fact, I've written directly in some uh, of, of my stories about... Um, that particular religion and my experience with it, but I've done it as fiction. Do you want um, to mention that religion or is that forbidden? 
It's up to you. Seventh-day Adventist. I don't know them. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, they're Seventh-day Adventists, and they're very, uh, um, very concerned with the end of the world, the time of trouble. They believe that uh, at some point a national Sunday law will be passed. They Seventh-day Adventists worship on Saturday. They're a Christian sect that observes the seventh day instead of Sunday. And that's a big deal to them. And they think that the world is going to be taken over by Catholics and that the uh, the worship that they're going to pass a law requiring everyone to worship on Sunday, and the Seventh Day Adventists and anybody else who doesn't want to worship on Sunday, like people of the Jewish faith, will be hunted down, um, imprisoned, tortured, killed, and that's what I was looking forward to as a child. <laughs> and this is their actual belief. This is not a fictional book or anything like that. Oh no, this is their this is their belief. This is what I was taught from my earliest age. Wow. Uh, my dad, who was a World War II veteran, Thank you used to watch. He, yeah, I'm very proud of that. He um, used to watch a lot of document. Back in the 70s, there were tons of documentaries about World War II. And the Holocaust being, a, in fact, that was the first time we were seeing some of this stuff. And I remember seeing the uh, piles of bodies being uh, stacked and or bulldozed into pits. And my dad saying, that's what they're going to do to us. And that image of those corpses, and that's that stuck. Wow. Boy, did that stick. And that's the kind of nightmares I had. I had nightmares that were about visually about the Holocaust, but I was in them, and I was one of the pursued. I was the nightmares in which I was hunted, imprisoned, tortured, all that stuff. And that is in a lot of my fiction. The, my novella Monsters was pretty much about that. Are you still battling to escape? Oh, no, I've been out for a long time. Okay. <clears throat> the, uh, I was using that as a metaphor. Escape. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. And and I'm 52 now, and it's been a long time. Mm -hmm. But there are still just moments, you know, when I'll, I'll see something on the news, and I'll have this this moment of terror when I think maybe they were right. Folks, we've been speaking with Ray Garten. www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book covers. There's 60 of them. Order some books. You're going to enjoy his horror. It's fabulous stuff, folks. www.nightfrightshow.com. Thank you, Ray, for joining us for this portion of the show. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you next time. Person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com. <laughs>